Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Rockerless. A couple of times a year, something very exciting would happen in my neighborhood. I've mentioned it many times. We had this store that was on the corner near our elementary school. Although it sold mostly cigarettes to adults and eventually lottery tickets, it also had quite a candy selection, being so close to the elementary school, and it had video games. It didn't have a very big video game section. Just the front area near the door where there used to be windows. Instead, they had pushed arcade games up against those windows, and they could get three in there uncomfortably. We would go in there all the time to buy candy, to play and watch people play video games. They also sold drinks and chips, all of that stuff. But the best day is when you would go in there and there was a new video game and you knew it right away. You would approach the door and as you pushed it open, it would be difficult to get in because a new video game meant more crowds. And so you'd kind of shove your way past some kids. You'd try to crane your neck to look between them to see what is this new game? What is this new game? And then you would hope that eventually the crowds would die down enough that you could get up there and try it out. When Joust showed up at the store, the sound was turned up very loudly, so you could really hear it. And even though I had a hard time seeing it, I still stayed there, trying to peek between people, because the sounds of the game were just so compelling. I could hear people hammering buttons, I could also see two people playing at the same time. And so I wanted to play this game, and I wanted to play it with a friend. So I remember running home, getting on the phone, calling my best friend at the time and saying, hey, there's a new game at the candy store. We should go up there and check it out. And he said, I don't have any quarters. I said, neither do I. Let's see what we can do. So we got off the phone and then begged our parents. He showed up maybe about 20 minutes later with maybe a dollar. I had about the same. We went up to the store and we waited patiently because there were a lot of older kids there. Eventually, maybe standing there for two hours, things thinned out enough that we could move up and try playing the game. And what we found most interesting about the game is that it was cooperative. We had never really played a cooperative game before. Yes, you could attack each other in Joust and knock each other off to get points, but they had whole waves where you got more points if you didn't hurt each other. And so it was a whole new challenge. Cooperation, coordination, a thoughtfulness. It also meant that you really wanted to have a partner in the game who was as good as you. And that meant if you started to fall behind, your friend might choose someone else to play with, someone who was better, who could get them further. I took this very seriously, and for a couple of months, any money I got went straight into Joust. I wanted to be good at it. I didn't want to be the weak link on the team. I was never the greatest Joust player, but my friends and I had a ball playing it. Switching up teams, taking turns, trying different things, tried to do special moves that we saw other people pull off. It was a great game, and it was so different seeming. And so on today's show, I'd like to talk to you about a great arcade game, Joust. We'll talk about the people and the company behind the game. We'll talk about the gameplay, its reception, and we'll throw in a few surprises here and there. We have an info-packed episode ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show.
Joust is a two-player co-op game developed by Williams Electronics and was released in 1982. It wasn't the first co-op game, but it was very polished. In the game, you took the role of a knight who, armed with a lance and mounted on a large bird, an ostrich for player one and a stork for player two, you must fly around the screen by flapping your wings and using your lance or your feet to take out enemy knights who are riding buzzards. And boy, are you hitting that flap button like crazy. That was the sound I heard most of all while waiting to play this game. People hitting the flap button. It went much louder than almost anything in the game. Although that pterodactyl can be loud and terrifying. While I might emphasize that this game is great for co-op, it's also a great head-to-head game. When you are trying to take each other out, there's a lot of compelling gameplay in such a small field. There would be other co-op games that would follow. Mario Brothers, for example, Balloon Fight, Jetpack, just to name a few. Before we get into the game itself, I want to talk a little bit about the people and the company behind it. Starting with the company, we'll talk about Williams Electronics. In 1933, Harry Williams entered the coin-operated amusement industry and was an innovator in the world of pinball, helping to create things like the tilt mechanism, electric scoring, and free plays by getting a certain score, all things that have become standard in pinball machines. And he went to work at a lot of companies like Rockola and Pacific Amusement Manufacturing. Then in 1942, he and Lyndon Durant formed United Manufacturing. That didn't last very long, and in 1943, Williams Manufacturing Company was founded in Chicago, Illinois. They started with seven products, a fortune-telling machine, three electromechanical games, Periscope, Liberator, and Circus Romance, another game called Zingo, and two pinball games, Flattop and Laura. Those two pinball games were conversions, and they did those by purchasing older pinball machines that were made by other companies, and they would change the artwork and other elements in the playfield. This was important because this was during World War II, and it was difficult to make new machines, and so you had to get by with what was around. And by refreshing these machines, it made them last longer. The first original machine that they made was a flipperless pinball machine called Suspense. The suspense is where is the ball going to land without you doing anything. Williams would continue to make pinball machines as well as bat and ball games. It would be the pinball machine Lucky Inning that was released in 1950 that would have the bottom flippers facing the way they do in the modern sense of pinball machines, inward facing. A lot would happen over the next decade and a half. Williams would sell part of the company to a Philadelphia distributor. Then they would buy Consolidated Sunray, which was a retail conglomerate. The company would get bought by the Seberg Corporation. After all of these moves and consolidation and repurchases, Sam Stern would run an amusement business in 1967 that was renamed Williams Electronics. They would continue to make pinball machines, making some great stuff in the 60s. But then in the 70s, they realized that with Atari's success in Pong, that video games were on the horizon. And their first video game would be Paddleball. Things did not work out. By 1980, Seberg was facing bankruptcy, and they sold Williams to Lewis and Neil Nicastro, who would run the company up until 2000. It was during this era, especially in the early 80s, that Williams would start developing video games that many people started to pay attention to, such as 1981's Defender. It was so popular that in the same year they released a sequel, Stargate. Then they would roll out other big games like Sinistar, Robotron 2084, they would license Moon Patrol, and they would release Joust. 
one of their big losses was when they tried to get into the Laserdisc video game craze. They created the game Star Rider, which caused a loss of $50 million for the company. And that's a lot of money. In 88, Williams acquired Bally Midway. And in the early 90s, they would make a couple of really great arcade games like NBA Jam, Mortal Kombat. In 96, they acquired Atari Games from Time Warner, and that very year, all game operations were consolidated under Midway, with Atari Games becoming Midway Games West, and Williams Entertainment becoming Midway Home Entertainment. Are you a fan of the Retros podcast? Do you like more retro stuff? Why not check out the Retros Patreon? Go to patreon.com retroist. Supporters of the show get bonus episodes, bonus tracks, bonus scans, access to the Retroist Discord, and more. Feel good about yourself and make a difference in the world. Support the Retroist. So a pretty storied company and a lot of talented people work there, including John Newcomer. He is a designer best known for his 1982 work on Joust, but he did produce other games for Williams Electronics and other companies like Midway. In 81, Newcomer joined Williams Electronics. At the time, they had had a big hit, Defender, from 1980. And because of that hit, they thought, well, video games are the future. And they did seem that way at the time. A fun story is that he wanted to show that he could stand out from the crowd. And he submitted his resume in the throat of a rubber chicken. People, I guess, thought that was very funny, and he got the job and was asked for some ideas. He had a bunch. One would be based on the War of the Worlds, and the other was based on Joust. Now, War of the Worlds was way too ambitious, but Joust, with existing Williams hardware, seemed possible. His vision was for a flying game with co-op play for two players. He wanted to get away from the space theme. He thought everything has been a space game. So let's get an alternative to all these spaceships. And he came up with a list of things that fly. And top of that list was animals. He chose birds and decided on an ostrich and a stork as the main characters. And if he wanted a bird that everyone immediately thought of as villainous, he thought the vulture made the most sense. Or vultures. They clean stuff up. They do good work. This meant he needed to kind of figure out how these birds were going to fly. And he came up with the flapping, where you would control your ascent and descent by hammering on the flap button. And to move horizontally, they just included a two-way joystick. A lot of people at Williams were not very happy with this design idea for how to fly, but Newcomer thought that having the player have complete and direct control would make them feel more connected to the character on the screen, and that was true. It gave you greater control and therefore allowed you to be more strategic about how you land or how you take off and get across the screen, and it became maybe the most important thing you could learn when playing the game. It wasn't about patterns or spaces you needed to land, although those were there. Instead, you needed to master the skills of this game first. Because he was the lead designer, he also had a team under him working on this game. This included artists Janice Woldenberg-Miller, Python Angelo, audio designers John Kotlerick and Tim Murphy, and programmer Bill Futzenreuter. The game, because it was being developed on existing hardware, had its limitations, and they needed to make this work. They had 96K of ROM chip storage, which meant you had to pick your graphics and your sound effects, and couldn't create more than the characters that you see in the game. And each of them are hand-animated pixel art. Woldenberg Miller animated the birds, 
And to do so, she had to figure out what were the minimum amount of frames she needed in that animation to make it look realistic and yet not take up that much room. And they had to make decisions on something as simple as colors because of the limitations of what they were making in the game. So while buzzards, for example, might be gray, they had to be changed to green, which I think works really well as an aesthetic, but it was not the original choice, but it was made because of the limitations they were locked into. As you can imagine, that limited size also meant very limited audio capabilities, because sounds require more memory than graphics, typically. So Colerick and Murphy were told to work on sounds that were just important to gameplay. That meant collisions, hatching eggs, wing flapping, of course, and then that pterodactyl. Oh, that pterodactyl. To make the game more interesting, so you're just not flying around in the middle of nowhere, Newcomer added platforms after they had come up with how you were going to fight. And they decided to lock in the game world. It wouldn't be like Defender where you could just keep flying around. Instead, you were in one screen that wrapped and you could go around from one side and come out the other. One element that they would add later was the lava pit, which would appear on the sides of the center platform in the game, and it would appear, and then if you flew too close to it, a hand would reach out and grab you, and then you would flap like crazy or get pulled into the lava. The first time we saw this, when I was a kid, everyone freaked out. It was amazing. Because now they had this static environment, they could program the enemies to do attack patterns based on the platforms. And as platforms disappeared, they could change them. And as time went on and you played, the enemies got more and more aggressive. But that wasn't the only behavior. There were ones that were more random. There were ones that would try to collide with you. There were others that would fly at the top of the screen. Then there was the pterodactyl. This was put in to basically be an in-game speed-up. You didn't have all the time in the world, and you could kill it, but it was only vulnerable in its open mouth, and that was only during a very specific bit of animation when it would open. So it was very difficult to kill it, and it was a big deal when somebody did. And you will notice that as you play, when there's a lot going on on the board, it will have the enemies slow down a bit, but not the player. They are prioritized in terms of what gets resources in the game. So there were two bugs in the game. One became a feature. The other one needed to be fixed. When they were seeing the game, they learned that you could belly flop your ostrich or stork and then pass through a very small gap. They were going to fix it, but thought, this is kind of interesting. And it allows you to do a kind of sneak attack from above. And because they had a very limited time frame while developing this, they decided that it was not a bug. It was a feature. The other one was a bug, a serious one, and was discovered when the game first came out. As I mentioned about the way that the monsters in the game attack, the AI behind it, was based on the specific thing you were facing. So the character's size in the game mattered, and there was sort of a hitbox around them, an area that was, if you hit it, you were interacting with that character. But the pterodactyl was changed to make it better looking a day before the game was finished. This new change allowed the pterodactyl to be killed an endless number of times. You just needed to sit on the center ledge with a single enemy knight who was in the hand of the lava troll, and an unlimited number of pterodactyls could be killed by just turning to face them. So you could rack up huge scores with a massive amount of lives and not know how to play at all. When Williams learned about this, they shipped an update for the arcade cabinets because the arcade owners and the distributors of the game were not happy. 
Long ago, in the distant future, where evil knights joust upon beasts of the air, you too must fly, joust, and retrieve the enemy's egg before it hatches, and beware the lava below. You can experience this world from the other side. It's called Joust, the arcade game, home now only from Atari. A video game? Hardly. Joust. You don't play it. You live it. Gameplay, as I mentioned, is pretty straightforward, but at the time it felt revolutionary. It is played by two people at the same time. You have one button and a two-way joystick that goes left or right, horizontal. On the game, you have multiple platforms, and the screen wraps around. You go off the left side, you come out the right, and vice versa. While playing, a wave of enemy knights appear, and they are armed with lances. When a player and an enemy collide, the one whose lance is higher on a vertical level unseats the other. If they're at the same height, you bounce off each other. When you defeat an enemy, they turn into an egg, which you can pick up for bonus points. But if you don't, the egg will hatch into a new knight, and a new buzzard will come out to pick them up. And that one will be a more difficult enemy to defeat. A wave ends when all of the enemy knights have been defeated and their eggs have either been destroyed or picked up. The game is more interesting because it adds little difficulties and changes to the game. The platforms disappear. You could earn bonus points for not losing a life or a wave where there are just eggs all over the place that you can get before they turn into enemies. You lose a life whenever you either are unseated by an enemy or you are dragged or fall into the lava. As I mentioned, Williams was worried about this game. It was different, but they shipped 26,000 units, and Electronics Games in 1983 described it as very successful and tremendously popular. It was in the 13 highest grossing arcade games of 1983 in the U.S. They would also release a cocktail table version of the game, which was engineered by Leo Lazia. It's different than cocktail tables that I've seen in that it is side by side rather than sitting across from each other, which really wouldn't work for Joust. I have played the cocktail version a couple of times. There's a couple of arcades near me currently that have them, although I don't remember seeing this at all when I was a kid. It is really cool, and it is kind of fun to sit side by side with someone as you play. I'm surprised other games didn't try to do this as time went on. I guess the cocktail table boom really had petered out by the time other co-op games had come out. So I did find some mentions of Joust in my local papers from when I was a kid. I printed some out here to look at. I also found an article from Iowa from 1982. Now these are all from 1982, the year it came out. I have a great ad from a local New Jersey paper for an arcade in Wachung, New Jersey. The fun time indoor playland on Highway 22. It's open year-round. Bring the whole family. One of the area's largest arcades. It has pool tables, pizza, roller skating, and all the latest games, including top of the list, Joust. Followed by Robotron, Stargate, Donkey Kong, Centipede, Galaga, Zaxxon, Jungle King, Moon Patrol, Tempest, Frenzy, Dig Dug, Miss Pac-Man, Space Duel, Tron, and Slither. All of these are great games. Even Dig Dug, I guess. I would prefer they replace that with Mr. Do, but okay. And it has great little illustrations in the ad of people playing pinball. Right underneath that is the Drake's Bakery's Thrift Store. Now, if you don't live in the Northeast, you might not be familiar with Drake's 
these cakes, but they are tremendous. Really good. The equivalent of Tasty Cake or Little Debbie or Hostess, but for me, were some of my favorites. The pricing is great. All individual Drake's cakes are 8 for 99 cents, or you could buy 16 for $1.49. You could buy a family pack, which is a box, for 89 cents, or you get three of those for $2.59, or you can buy a value pack for $1.39. Now, I don't know what's in those, but I want them all. They do have the shot of the brands at the top. They have Devil Dogs, Coffee Cakes, Yodels, Yankee Doodles. Every one of them are delicious. They also sell fresh bread there. White bread, hams and franks, a bunch of rye breads, Italian-style bread. Ooh, Cavanaugh Deli Rolls, 95 cents a dozen. And this is around Thanksgiving time, so you can enter to win a free turkey. Such great local stuff. They also have an ad for Computer Mart, where you can ask about their free IBM personal computer seminars. More locally, from where I live, was a story about the jousting champion Keith Hutchins. This was in December of 1982. There's a tiny blurb in the People section. It says, Keith Hutchins, 16, racked up more than 75 million points in 25 hours playing the video game Joust before he tuckered out and lost to the machine. Keith played from 3 p.m. Sunday to about 4 p.m. Monday in an Oskaloosa, Iowa arcade. He was bug-eyed and ready to go to bed, said Jeff Harden, arcade manager who believes Keith's 75,343,150 points are a world record. Keith's mother got him excused from school Monday so he could keep up the marathon. That's a good mom. And it's interesting that it's Iowa. And then I found a pretty big article from Iowa about Joust. And I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that a lot of this has to do with the fact that Twin Galaxies was located in Iowa. Which, when I just looked at a map, is not very far from Oskaloosa. So you could probably see someone in Oskaloosa going to Ottumwa to play games at Twin Galaxies. The article I found was from Council bluffs and is written by Dr. Digits who is talking about video games. He talks about Moon Patrol and Jungle King, but then he saves the best for last, talking about Joust. He says, Ah, but the devious Doc is saving the best for last. Williams is Joust, a clever game that's easy to play, but tough to master. You're likely to like it if you can detach old Doc from the controls long enough to try it, that is. Joust happens on an inky black screen filled with flat-topped floating rocks. Look on one of the rocks. It's a good guy, you. Perched atop a critter that looks like an outsized ostrich with a skewer in your hand. It goes on, very clever writing. And I love that in a newspaper, page one of the, I guess, art section has a piece about video games in October of 1982. Which is just a couple of months after it was released in North America. If you think ColecoVision plays all Atari cartridges... You mean it can't? Here's Pac-Man on ColecoVision. But here's Pac-Man for the Atari 5200 Super System. Now you're talking. And it doesn't work on ColecoVision. But won't their adapter? It won't play Super System cartridges. Not pole position? Not this pole position. Not centipede? Not this centipede. Only on the Atari 5200 Super System. But aren't they hard to find? They're everywhere. Everywhere? The Atari 5200 Super System. The game was successful enough to get some ports, as you might guess. Atari would publish the game under the Atari Soft label, and it would be released on the Atari 2600, 5200, 7800, and their 8-bit family of computers. It would also get a release on the Macintosh and Apple II. 
There was a port by Atari Soft being made for the IBM that was never published. Years later, it would be ported to the Nintendo Entertainment System and would start to show up on other platforms years later. There would be other Joust-related games. A Joust pinball table was put out in 1983. It was designed by Constantino Mitchell and Barry Ausler, and it has artwork and design very similar to the arcade machine. But what makes it really interesting is that in addition to single player, you could have two player gameplay with the player on the opposite side of the machine playing. Unfortunately, they didn't make many of these. Less than 500. I did not get to play it as a kid, but I've gone to a couple of arcade shows where I've gotten to play it. And it is a lot of fun, especially if you have a second player. But be gentle with it. There's not a lot of them out there. In 1986, they released Joust 2, Survival of the Fittest. Very similar, but had a couple of new elements, including a vertical screen. The game would be ported, as I said, to more modern platforms, and there was attempts at remakes. And we would see previously unreleased prototypes from Atari Soft that were supposed to be ported to other systems like the ColecoVision and the BBC Micro start to show up. There was also a version being made for the Atari Jaguar called Dactyl Joust that was cancelled. When the Nintendo 64 came out, it looked like there was going to be a 3D version of Joust where you would have had split screen and multiplayer, but it never saw the light of day. There have been mobile phone versions, a keychain version, and just a couple of years ago, they released a Joust board game. What would have been really interesting was back in 2007, Midway optioned Joust's movie rights, and it would have been this sort of gladiator meets Mad Max, according to an interview I read. That got pushed back. Midway would file for bankruptcy. Warner Brothers picked up the rights to the game and said maybe we'd do some film adaptation in the future, and then nothing ever happened. That doesn't mean that entertainment has ignored Joust. The game got a nice mention in the book Ready Player One and has also shown up on TV shows like Robot Chicken. Well, I think everything eventually showed up on Robot Chicken. Joust is a really fun game and it's still very playable today. Whenever I go to an arcade with someone, I want to play Joust with them. And I'm still okay at the game. I really do prefer the co-op. But if a person wants to throw down and we can fight it out, I'm okay with that too. It's just a whole lot of fun. Non-stop action from all sides. And it was innovative at the time. And strangely, nothing has ever come close to matching this type of gameplay in this style. So next time you're at the arcade or you're emulating arcade, arcade games and want something fun to play, I would try Joust. It's a great game and a lot of fun. Just watch out for that pterodactyl. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, you can drop by the website at Retroist.com. If you want to follow me on social media, I'm at most of the major platforms at Retroist. The music you hear on the show is by Peachy. If you like what you hear, you should follow Peachy on Twitter and Twitch. He's at PeachyPixel8. That's the word Peachy, the word Pixel, and the number 8. If you'd like to support the show, you could do so by giving it a 5-star review wherever you downloaded it. Those 5-star reviews are really all that helps people find shows nowadays. So if you had the time and can do it, I really would appreciate it. If you'd like to support the show further, you could do so by checking out the Retroist Patreon. Supporters of the show, for just a couple of bucks a month, get bonus tracks, bonus episodes, bonus scans, and access to the Retroist Discord, the friendliest retro community on the internet. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend.
The bopped baddies turn into eggs you can crack for bonus points. A skewer-resistant pterodactyl flaps by occasionally, and the bottom of the screen gradually fills up with boiling lava to cook your goose. Uh, ostrich. Pure poetry. Dr. Digit's pure poetry. Love it. This has been a Retro's production. Goodbye.